Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Tonight, straight from the source, Nikki Haley is fighting on and Donald Trump is fighting mad. Instead of celebrating, he is seething. And I have new reporting about what set him off and what he's now demanding of his inner circle. Also tonight, a plane crash mystery after a Russian jet said to be carrying 74 people plunges to the ground, killing everyone on board. Russia claims that Ukraine shot it out of the sky, killing dozens of their own prisoners of war. Also tonight, an execution starting to so as soon as midnight as Alabama is about to kill a convicted murderer using a method that no state has ever tried before. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, Nikki Haley is refusing to quit, and Donald Trump is enraged about that. She says that her campaign has raised a million dollars since she came in second place last night, money that she is spending on rallies and on TV ads in South Carolina. Donald Trump got out there and just threw a temper tantrum. <laughs> he pitched a fit. He was, he was insulting. He was doing what he does. But I know that's what he does when he's insecure. I know that's what he does when he is threatened. And he should feel threatened, without a doubt. She says that he should feel threatened. But tonight, a growing list of big-name Republicans are already calling the race. That includes the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. In the meantime, the same people who once tried to keep Trump from returning to the White House are now professing their love for him, quite literally. She actually appointed you, Tim. <laughs> and think of it, appointed and you're the senator of his state and she endorsed me. You must really hate her. No, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. That effusive embrace is now running through to the party's very core. It is a grip that is now really embodied by the House of Representatives. Look at these numbers that we looked at today. 122 House Republicans have endorsed Donald Trump once again, that column you see on the right is Nikki Haley's. She has just one member of Congress. And that lone House Republican endorsing Haley is South Carolina Representative Ralph Norman. And he joins me now from North Charleston, where that Haley event that you heard from her just wrapped up. And Congressman, I'm so glad you're here because truly you have a singular perspective on this, at least when it comes to, to the halls that you roam on a daily basis. I think the question is, if there is still a path to victory for Nikki Haley, why are you the only member of Congress who sees, seems to see it? Well, for, first of all, Caitlin, I was the one of three when she ran for governor, uh, with which she won twice. Nikki has been against establishment from day one. And you know this, you cover politics. The establishment uh, is just that. And people get behind candidates for different reasons. Uh, I endorsed Nikki in, in uh, February of, of last year. Uh, I called Donald Trump before because I respect him. I said, President Trump, I'm going to endorse Nikki. 
and uh, he was real kind. And uh, I think at the time he didn't think she had a chance, but I knew Nikki had a chance. And I wish every American could have seen her backstage. I introduced her tonight. She is, is as resolved and determined as anybody I've ever seen. So if 48 st states left, she will compete. And I think it's good for the system. Competition is good, Caitlin. Uh, people can say all they want, uh, particularly the news media, get out, do this. Rona Barrett saying, uh, you know, you got to unify. Unify what? Uh, let's, let's go through the process. Let the, let the voters speak. Yeah, I should note, it's Republicans who are calling on her to drop out, not the media. I mean, you heard from Ron and McDaniel. They are, you know, typically a, a neutral member until the, the candidate is selected. But, you know, in, North, in South Carolina, where you are, that is the next state. She says that she believes she's going to do well there. She's been proven wrong and done well. Do you think that South Carolina is a must win for her? Well, obviously, she'd like to win all of them. I wish she would have loved to have won uh, New Hampshire. You know, you try to win all of them. That's not the real world. I will tell you, uh, she will do well in South Carolina, and she's in this thing. She's not going to quit. And the fact she's willing to risk that, she's going to go to town to town, just like she did tonight. She had probably 800 people tonight. That's what she's going to do across the state. That's how she won as governor. And uh, that's how she's going to uh, she's going to put up a fight. It's the same grit that I saw in her when, I, when we went in the state legislature together, when she beat a 30-year incumbent. You, you mentioned so, the word uh, risking that. That's what, what, American, you, what do you think she's risking? I don't think she's risking anything. I mean, you've got to remember, she's willing to put the time in. She's willing to spend the money. She's willing to get up at 6 and go till, you know, 10, 11, 12 at night. She's willing to do all the interviews. And uh, it's just courage that she's doing this. I don't think I've seen another politician like her in, in my life, to be honest with you. Uh, everybody else would have gotten out. You saw it started, what, 14 candidates? Mm -hmm. It's down to two. Uh, they all typically, if they don't see a path to victory, uh, she sees a path, and it's two words, hard work. She doesn't care, but she'll risk the, uh, when she goes up in South Carolina to put it to a vote, could she flounder? Yes, but she could also do very well. And she's anxious to, from and South Carolina you make, for Super Tuesday as well. You just mentioned that you talked to Trump after, uh, when you said you were going to endorse her. I wonder what you made of his speech last night where he claimed that, she said she won when she congratulated him on his win. He made fun of her outfit. You know, he implied that she'd be under investigation if she did win the Republican nomination. What did you make of how angry he was? I didn't understand it. I mean, he won. I mean, he won New Hampshire, as he did Iowa. And I know President Trump. Um, you know, I've, I've loved his policies. I like him as a person. Now, last night, it really surprised me. And I'm one that and the, the, the press has always asked me about, you know, is it his comments he makes, the names he gives people. It's actually funny uh, with Pocahontas, like uh, Low Energy Jeb, like uh, Little Marco. All those names, he can get away with that. Uh, but last night was a little bit more cutting, that, and it really surprised me, really. I mean, to make fun of somebody's dress, um, and the way Tim Scott, you must hate Nicky or you know, I, I didn't understand that. But look, Donald Trump has been successful. Uh, he can say what he wants, and you're not going to change him. I'll tell you that. Well, he calls her bird brain. I think people would say that that's classic Trump. But, Congressman, you know, one thing that you have said on the campaign trail for Nikki Haley repeatedly 
when questioned about what is her path to victory is you talk about the voters and you say the voters should be the ones to decide. Obviously, everyone agrees with that. But, New, when you talk about what the voters decide, I have to ask you, because you and I have never spoken before in an interview, about a text message that you sent to Mark Meadows. It was three days before President Biden was inaugurated, and you were urging the White House to use the U.S. military to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. Do you regret sending that message? The only thing I regret, I misspell uh, martial law. I misspell that. No, I didn't. I didn't. Won't, I, I, look, everything happened so quick in that election. Uh, the time that was given to see if the ballots were real, see if, uh, you know, you've seen 2,000 mules. Uh, most people have. There's a lot of questions. What's that was wrong with created by time? a guy that Trump and pardoned. In, created by who? Wasn't that created by a guy that Trump pardoned? I mean, the point of it is that movie is not based in reality. There is no, no election fraud, and their uh, courts have proven that. Republican judges that were appointed by Republican presidents ha- have noted that. I mean, there was no elect, there was no evidence of that by no. the time January 17th rolled around, Congressman. Well, there were questions, as you know, there were questions throughout the election process. Uh, what happened in Georgia was unusual. What happened in Arizona was unusual. Look, I talked to the Congress people. Uh, that serve those particular states. But uh, no, I don't regret that um, at all. And it's still questions that linger today. But uh, the, if, and we Sir, have got to get our Sir, what questions are there that right. linger today? Uh, because this is really important. We are approaching another election. And when you talk to Republican voters, in CNN exit polls, half of them don't believe that Joe Biden legitimately won the election, which he did. And calling for martial law because you have questions about the election, I think most people would agree is subverting the will of voters that you often talk about that are so important? No, look, uh, to keep this system honest, photo voter ID, which the Democrats tried to circumvent, they've been trying to to circumvent that. Uh, What they're doing with the illegal aliens, with the with the vote, get them registered to vote is not right. That's what I'm talking about. What does that have Uh, to do with making sure that's you calling for martial law, Congressman? Look, look, I texted uh, Mark Meadows. That's the only person. Uh, he didn't have the power. I asked him. Donald Trump was shot, He was, was the chief too. of staff at the White um, House. Did he respond to your message that day? I don't think not, you've ever, uh, ever made clear what his acknowledgement of your message was. I don't, you know, I don't think he, everything was going on. Everything was so fast, I don't think he did. But the bottom line is we've got to have secure elections and whatever that takes. Uh, there are a lot of questions that still exist. Um, you know, you've seen the lawsuits that, that were there. Uh, but no, I, um, I wouldn't take it back. I, I misspelled it. I should have taken the time. I was in a hurry. And, uh, but no, I, I, would not, I don't regret that. Those lawsuits were all thrown out. None of them amounted to anything. The only place where they found they miscounted, Biden actually had a bigger margin than he initially did. Congressman, it is striking to hear you say that you stand by asking for martial law to be declared three days before Biden was elected. Uh, I just wanted to make sure we we talked to you about that. So thank you, Congressman Ralph Norman, for your time Uh, tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk about that back half of that in a moment. I am joined tonight by CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent from The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Uh, I mean, we're supposed to talk about Trump, and I have a lot of questions on your reporting, but... You have other I'm things on your mind right now. Kind of stunned yeah. that 
He says the only because for people who didn't see the text, he spelled Marshall M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, not M-A-R-T. He didn't spell it correctly. He says that's the only thing he regrets about that. Continuity has not really been anybody's strong suit uh, in talking about elections, at least on the Republican side since 2020. He's sent, he, as you noted, he is talking about how it's up to the will of the voters. Martial law would not be in keeping with that three days before the inauguration. So, and saying there's still questions, there's still questions because Donald Trump keeps saying there's questions. And so there's a whole group of people who follow him who are going along with that. But it, it is a prelude, I think, to what we are going to see over the next nine months. And so if you are hearing that from the only person in the House who is backing Donald Trump's opponent, Think about what that's going to look like on a broader scale. Yeah, and that it's, it is amazing because he's a really conservative member of Congress and he is backing Haley over Trump, who has been appealing to more moderates. And when you look at the numbers last night, the people who were voting for Nikki Haley based on CNN's exit polls, uh, they were they believe that Biden won the election mm-hmm. by overwhelming margins. It's Trump voters who, who do not. Well, and that's a reminder to your point that the congressman is a very conservative member um, when people talk about how a lot of folks are up for grabs or a number of folks or a swath of Republicans are up for grabs, there's a lot who are not. And who, if Donald Trump is the nominee, people like Congressman Norman are going to be right behind him and, and will, you know, I suspect, promote what the former president says. Well, and even when he, you know, we were talking about his reaction last night, when he wins elections, which he did handily last night, he won New Hampshire, he didn't come out like he did after Iowa, where he was, you know, so happy and thrilled. Last night, he was essentially seething. You talked about what the next 10 months could look like. I mean, what could the next three weeks look like or as long as Nikki Haley is still in the race? I suspect it will be very ugly. And, and I, you know, I thought the congressman was sort of leaning into that without actually saying it. He mentioned something about risk, and then he said something about courage. seemed to me that was pretty obvious what he was talking about, which is that uh, people who go against Trump uh, in ways that Trump does not like are often subjected to, you know, an array of humiliations or criticisms or or insinuations or, or vague threats. And, you know, Ron DeSantis certainly got a lot of that. Uh, we saw the former president turn his sights on Nikki Haley last night. We know that he wants his allies to go after her. I expect his campaign will start to do so uh, more actively. I suspect the super PAC will, although they have not reserved TV time yet. But, you know, I think they're waiting to see what happens. He also went after his former White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, right. for saying something that, you know, I went back and looked at what exactly it was that she had said, because before She'd said something nice about Ron DeSantis. And last night, she kind of just said something that was accurate about what happened. This is what she told uh, viewers. I'd go home and I'd look under the hood. And when you look under the hood of our Fox News voter analysis data, you find that 32 percent of Republicans say we wouldn't we won't vote for Trump. I've got to unite the party. That's the argument Nikki Haley's making. And number two, I would look. Nikki Haley won independence, according to Fox News voter analysis, 59 to 33. He called her a rhino for that, Republican in name only, and told her to save her advice for, for someone else, for Nikki Haley. Because it's a warning shot to anybody else who might be around him who is or who was once around him and is seen as having uh, cred with the with the right and with the MAGA movement for saying anything that's based in fact that he doesn't like. That's all that is. Does he realize, Does he, you know, when he wins like he right. did last night, does, does the campaign see... Does he see the vulnerabilities that were also exposed last night, not for Republican primary, but for the general election? Some folks do. I just want to take a pause for one sec, though, to your point that he won last night. I, it was the most scorched earth victory speech I have ever seen. I mean, it was it was astonishing. You would have thought he lost based on the speech that he gave. And 
Look, Nikki Haley, you know, absolutely, you know, seized the moment and went ahead of him while the voting was still tighter. That's not new in politics. This is just sort of a thing people do. Bill Clinton very famously did it in 1992 in New Hampshire. He called himself the comeback kid. He did not win. So she congratulated him. And she said he won. She was clearly very aware of that. So I just think that's worth noting because it was quite something, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, they're not sure what to make of these numbers because remember, it's the the, the uh, unaffiliated voters, many of them are still pretty Democrat-leaning. And so they're not sure what a harbinger this is for the rest of the country. What they are aware of is the number of Republicans who say a criminal conviction would be a problem for them in terms of seeing him as fit for office. And so it really, a lot of this comes down to the court cases. And I think that is just going to be the story of this election. Yeah, absolutely. Maggie Haberman, thank you, as always, for being here, for responding to that interview. Meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, there was a critical endorsement today for President Biden. Also, another interruption. Pro-Palestinian protesters after interrupting President Biden once again. The question is, what does it mean for November? I'll ask a key ally of his in Congress. Plus, dozens tonight are reportedly dead after a plane crashed near the Russia-Ukraine border Russia claiming that that flight was carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war. Ukraine says it was carrying missiles. What happened and who or what was actually on that plane? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, President Biden got a major endorsement from one of the largest unions in the nation. It is the United Auto Workers Union, and the president, Sean Fain, praised President Biden for standing with the union, coming after a lengthy strike against the big three automakers last year. This choice is clear. Joe Biden bet on the American worker, while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. So if our endorsements must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it. Let me just say I'm honored to have your back and you have mine. That's the deal. They made President Biden work for that endorsement, I should note, because for months, Fain had not endorsed Biden, neither had the UAW after endorsing him in 2020. It was a rift. It became this kind of uneasy political reality for the president as the White House worked to get that endorsement because President Biden needs blue-collar workers to fortify this blue wall that he had in the Midwest. States like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all crucial for his chances come November. Joining me tonight is the co-chair of President Biden's re-election campaign, Senator Chris Coons. Senator, it's great to have you here tonight. I wonder how much you think this endorsement will matter, what it will mean come November. 
Well, Caitlin, I think it matters a lot because Joe Biden has always fought for America's middle class to have the 380,000 members of the UAW strongly endorse Joe Biden for re-election is just a reminder of the long relationship they've had. He fought to save American automakers and the auto unions in 2008-2009. And as president, he's presided over the strongest growth in manufacturing in decades. So he's got a strong record. They've got a great relationship. And I think this will strengthen him going into the election this fall. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's obviously resonated with the unions. He has always called himself the most pro-union president, even though they did make him work for this endorsement. But I wonder what you make, because when you look at their own internal polling, and Sean Fain was talking about this with Jake Tapper earlier, the members, a a third of them actually voted for Trump in the last two presidential election cycles. And so for President Biden, you know, what do you want to see him do to to shore up his support with the rank and file members, these blue collar battleground states uh, where a lot of these rank and file members are. Well, in announcing his endorsement, UAW President Sean Fain gave a sharp and clear contrast between former President Trump and President Joe Biden. And his conclusion was Joe Biden stood up, showed up and fought for us. And Donald Trump didn't. That Trump represents the interests of billionaires and of management and that Joe Biden fights for the American middle class. That message spread throughout all of the middle class of the United States and all the different industrial unions, uh, the building trades and the UAW and many others, government workers as well, uh, teachers and public employees, uh, will help strengthen uh, the margins by which I think he's going to win. We've seen some good news in just the last couple of days. Polls in New Hampshire and in Pennsylvania showing Joe Biden beating Donald Trump by seven or eight points. Yeah. And of course, we've seen polls that have shown it pretty close. Obviously, we're at their polls. It's just a snapshot, not a prediction. But, you know, one thing that has happened every time the president, almost every time the president has spoken at these public events lately, where he's interrupted by protesters, people who are protesting the Israel-Hamas war, pro-Palestinian protesters. And it happened today at the United Auto Workers event. Just listen to, to what happened while he was speaking and getting this big endorsement. No matter what that was, it should be. Jill and I had a chance to sit down. Now, Senator, as you know, in politics, there are protesters all the time, especially yeah. for presidents. I've seen it from Democratic and Republican presidents. But these are protesters who, who want to cease fire in Gaza. There were 12 instances today, according to Kevin Liptak on CNN's White House team, that that happened just in that one event alone. I wonder how worried you are that, that his stance towards Israel, his support for Israel, could hurt his chances with younger, more progressive voters come November. Well, President Biden showed in how he conducted himself in both those uh, tapes you just showed uh, that he respects the right of protest, that he doesn't have folks uh, as former President Trump did during his rallies and as he does now during his rallies. Uh, He doesn't call on the crowd to set on them or attack them or uh, abuse them as they're being uh, hauled out uh, as former President Trump did. Um, President Biden is working tirelessly to increase the humanitarian aid going into Gaza, uh, to change the IDF's tactics on the ground in a way that'll reduce civilian casualties, uh, and to pressure 
um, the IDF and the uh, Israeli government to reduce settler violence in the West Bank. He is making a difference in the circumstances on the ground in very tough circumstances. Um, Hamas uses Palestinians as a human shield. It is well demonstrated that they have their military storehouses, the tunnels in which they continue to hold hostages, uh, and the reserves of their uh, fighting forces underneath mosques and hospitals and apartment blocks, and that has made the conduct of this war in Gaza awful. The civilian deaths are mm -hmm. unacceptable, and President Biden continues to push. I am optimistic, Caitlin, that there will be soon announced uh, a next phase in a negotiated ceasefire that will allow for the release of hostages and a significant increase in humanitarian relief. Uh, and all of us are working and praying uh, for an outcome here that reduces civilian deaths. Yeah, it's been a devastating toll. Senator Chris Coons, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Still ahead here on The Source, a mystery after a fiery plane crash in Russia, killing everyone on board. But was anyone on board besides the crew? The Kremlin says it was filled with Ukraine's prisoners of war. Ukraine is saying something else. We'll tell you ahead. One downed Russian plane and two competing stories about why tonight. It all comes down to what and who brought down a Russian transport plane that you see here when it was just miles from the Ukrainian border. Moscow claims, without evidence, I should note, that Ukraine shot it down which the Russians say was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war and nine others, none of whom survived. This video that you see here was geolocated by CNN. It appears to show the plane's final moments before it crashes and bursts into flames. While Ukrainian officials acknowledge that a prisoner exchange was planned for today, they've declined to say if their forces fired on this aircraft. They also dispute that the plane was carrying these prisoners of war, alleging that it was actually carrying missiles. CNN tonight cannot independently verify either side's claims. But for, night, for more on this, I do want to bring in Nina Khrushcheva, the historian and great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, who led the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. And I'm so glad to have you here tonight because obviously we're hearing two disputing accounts. But, but I wonder what you just make of, of what we're looking at and what, they're, what both sides are saying. Well, of course, both sides probably blame each other because Ukrainians claim that they, they don't confirm that they were prisoners there on the plane. Uh, that Belgorod region where it all happened has been shot by uh, the Ukrainian artillery and uh, um, the drones. So it has been attacked quite often in recent months, in particular recent weeks. So it is possible that it is a Ukrainian plane. Uh, sorry, it is a Ukrainian missile. And of course, that's the Russians are seizing on is that there was supposed to be through prisoner exchange. And because Ukrainians have been shooting in that region, that must be the case. So, and we've seen them do this before. And they've done it before. And actually, that's when we say without evidence, uh, they may have some evidence. It, it's not without a realm of possibility that even uh, the Ukrainians may be thinking if they were shooting at the plane, they were shooting at a Russian military plane. They may not have known what's in that plane. That's absolutely entirely possible. But at this point, we're just guessing. It's a guessing game. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, I think both sides claim that they need to be an investigation and, and they find the truth and whatnot. But how you find the, really the truth at the time of war in, in the territory of Russia that nobody is allowed to go 
that's a bigger question. Right. There, there's no real way to get a, exactly. a straight answer. I mean, no one knows that better than you. And, and you were telling me you just got back from Moscow. What was it like? Well, I mean, look, you don't have a your program is not long enough for me to explain how is it like. It's, it's, uh, we'll give you the rest of the hour. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, well, it's, it's a country at war that pretends not to be at war. So you have billboards with all the calls to serve with the hours, you know, the call for duty. So sub- implying that those who are not serving are not the hours. Uh, at the same time, uh, Vladimir Putin just, just in November, they opened this giant exhibit in the Stalin-era exhibition complex that was sort of dead after the Soviet Union, and now it's all back to life, and it's all incredibly Stalin-esque, happy people with Putin in charge and whatnot. So the competing accounts, the countries at war at the same time uh, the future generation, it's actually the year of a child, which is interesting in the mm-hmm. time of war. So for the children of the future, uh, they are creating this sort of Patomkin village, the illusion of how great Russia is. And it's always sort of this absolute tension between what Russia really is and what uh, the propaganda wants to present it as. It must be hard for you to see that. And, and I mean, Putin's running for re-election, well, so writing for election is a re-election. very right. It's, it's, it's a giant way of putting it. I mean, I wonder, like, what were you thinking on, on the flight back? Like, how were you reflecting on your? Time? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not very emotional. I don't cry, but, but I cry because the country that I knew, and I'm a Soviet person. Let's remember that. So I grew up in the Soviet Union. So it was a reasonably oppressive society. What's happening now is incomparable. It's a very Stalinesque time. Uh, in Russia. I mean, it's not mass purges, but there's certainly mass arrests and uh, mass prosecutions and, and, and whatnot. So it is, it is a dramatic thing, but also because my great-grandfather denounced Stalin. And so suddenly we are seeing that he was a great man and a great manager and he, everything he did was, was, was right. And so I'm like, wait a minute. So Khrushchev was wrong in 1956. All the things we thought um, uh, Russia uh, gained after destalinization now is essentially wasted. So, in many levels, it's a, it's it's a big tragedy tragedy for many of us who are there and who had to leave, and those of us who are born Russian. Does it surprise you? Yes and no. Uh, what happened doesn't surprise me because it's very typical of Russian history, because the whole Russian history, it's like pendulum swing, remission, oppression, remission, oppression, remission, oppression. But the fact that it happened after 30 years of exposure to the world, because Russia has never had that openness to that amount of the population. It's never been, uh, Russians never lived, um, uh, because under Putin, Russians lived better than, than ever before. And suddenly, he himself, essentially, my argument to myself is that he himself just had a coup against himself in the Kremlin for the 20 years of reasonable prosperity and stability. He said, oh, no, OK, we don't want it. We just want to go back into what Stalin was and oppressions and d- despotism. It's remarkable to hear you say that. Thank you for sharing that with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for coming on tonight. Thanks. Still ahead here uh, on the 2024 race at home, Nikki Haley has been leaning into the message that she launched her campaign with has to do with age, saying that Trump and Biden both lack the mental acuity to be president. More with our political experts after a quick break.
Tonight, Nikki Haley campaigning in her home state of South Carolina, challenging Donald Trump when it comes to his mental acuity. goes back to why I've continued to push for mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. And so he got upset and he said that he would take one and he'd challenge me to one and that he would beat me. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But what I said is, okay, well, if that's the case, then get on a debate stage and let's go. She's not just going after his age. She's also said that President Biden is, quote, too old to be in office. I want to talk about all of this with two very young people, former advisor <laughs> to President Clinton, Paul Begala, and Georgia's former lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, who are just shy of 30 years old. I mean, what do you is this an argument that's going to resonate with Republican voters? Well, let's call honest balls and strikes. The average life expectancy of an American, 77.6. Both of these guys are playing on borrowed time right now. You know, and, and quite honestly, I mean, Ouch. we... Yeah, they're, we not, they're not buying any green bananas. Yeah. Huh? I mean, we wouldn't hire these people in any job, in any setting, in any county, in any state in America. But yet we want to, we want to interview them to, to run the country. Um, look, this is, this, is, this is hard to fathom that this is the best our parties can do. It's, in fact, you know, I think both sides should be embarrassed that this is the best we can produce in some of the most difficult times. Are we critics will say that she's being ageist and that she's being a little too out there. On, on I, I mean, I think, look, Democrats said it about Ronald Reagan and he carried 49 states. So I, I'm a little hesitant to, to be too harsh about people who criticize other people's age, because when I was young, that's what I was saying about Reagan. I was wrong then. And I think Biden at least needs to lean into it. And I think his argument needs to be something like this. Yeah, I'm old, but with age comes wisdom and wisdom's important in this job. And then he can point to some of the things he's gotten done. And, and uh, I think that he can use that as an advantage. I, I don't think very many independents think that uh, Mr. Trump has become more wise with age. But I do think they think that about Biden. But he can't run away from it. He's got to lean into it. Hmm. Well, Jeff, you wrote something today that, that was interesting to me. You said the country's on a collision course for a sequel that nobody wants. Uh, and you said that Trump could be a convicted felon by by Election Day. And you were comparing it to this sense of when you saw people in baseball taking steroids to, to the regret that they had years later. Yeah, I watched this mistake play out where great friends, good people, use steroids to try to embellish their, their stats, try to get to the next level. Uh, I'm watching the same thing happen with Republican politicians. They're just endorsing Trump. It's not like they believe the election was rigged. It's not like they believe he's an honest human being or he's a great leader. They just see it as a, a politically expedient uh, step to take. I mean, to watch Tim Scott do what he's doing is painful. I can't imagine him having to go back and watch that when he goes back to his hotel room at night. He, he must cringe. Yeah, well, you know, we're seeing them fall in line so quickly. And, and Nikki Haley is still in this race. She has not gotten out yet, much to Trump's clear chagrin, as he made clear in his, his speech last night. He's just posted, as she's in um, South Carolina, that anyone who makes a contribution to her, and he called her bird brain, which has been the nickname he's been using, from this moment forth will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. He, he, he seems like a nice guy, doesn't he? He likes to threaten. And uh, I think this thing is over, and I, I bet you she's probably out by the weekend. And yet, as Zell Miller from Georgia, one of my mentors and old bosses, you say, former lieutenant governor, former lieutenant governor, a hit dog will holler. So he is afraid. He's clearly afraid of her. And I do think there's a problem he has with strong women, 
right? He didn't like Hillary. He didn't like Nikki Haley. He didn't like Nancy Pelosi. You know, he, so he's, he, by the way, doesn't like a lot of these judges and prosecutors who are women. Um, and, and so there's something going on here that I don't, I'm not seeing. Because this is a strategist. I can tell you this thing is over. There's no path that I can see so, that gets so, Nikki Haley the nomination. So why is he panicking? He, what he needs to be doing is create the space for her to get out with some dignity and then win over those voters. You know, there was about half of Haley voters in Iowa, 43 percent to be precise, said they would never vote for Trump. Yesterday in New Hampshire, 35 percent of all the Republicans said they would never vote for Trump. Now, he only lost about seven or eight percent of Republicans against Biden. He can't lose 35 and win. So I, it's not it's not a rational thing. So I'm trying to think as a strategist what he's doing. I think he's just scared. I'm not sure why, but he's something about strong women. Caitlin scares him. I think we saw that when, when you did the town yeah, hall with no him. I comment on that. But, but what did you, I mean, is that a, a legit argument in your sense that Haley clearly has a pull with moderates and with independents? Mm-hmm. Would it not more make more sense for him to bring her into the fold instead of barring her contributors from his camp, as he's calling Breaking it. news. Donald Trump does not do what makes good sense. He does what he wants to do when he wakes up. He wants to do something that feeds his ego. And for whatever reason, picking on, on qualified, strong-willed people it makes him feel good. Look, Republicans are headed for a cliff within days or weeks, uh, a cliff that, that's going to destroy our party. We're going to nominate this guy for a second time. And I will sit here today and tell you that Donald Trump is a worse candidate than Herschel Walker. And everybody knows how I felt about Herschel Walker. Wow, that is for you. That's a that's a, high a real, bar. That's a real criticism. Jeff Duncan, Paul Begala, as always. Lovely to have you both. Paul, roll tied to you. Coming up here, <laughs> we could be just hours away from something in Alabama that is getting a lot of national attention tonight. There's a reason why. It is the first of its kind execution. A convicted murderer has put being put to death with nitrogen gas. It's very controversial because it's the first time it's ever happened in any state as his attorneys have been fighting it. We have details on the ground ahead. Tonight, the state of Alabama is on the brink of executing a death row prisoner using nitrogen gas, a method that is unprecedented and untested. The Supreme Court today cleared the way for this execution after Kenneth Smith's attorneys asked them to intervene. He'll be the first inmate, if this goes forward, ever put to death by nitrogen hypoxia, essentially the inhaling of pure nitrogen gas to the point of suffocation. His lawyers have objected, arguing that the state could botch the procedure the way that it did with its failed attempt to execute Smith by lethal injection two years ago. He has spent more than two decades on death row for the 1988 killing of Elizabeth Sennett. Her husband, a pastor, hired Smith and two other people to kill his wife for $1,000 each. CNN's Isabel Rosales is in Alabama covering this story. And Isabel, obviously, you know, we've seen his attorneys pushing back. It's a method that's never been used before. What else are they saying tonight? Caitlin, good evening. They are arguing this is cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of Kenneth Smith's Eighth Amendment right. Uh, Essentially, they are arguing that this amounts to torture. This is something that the U.N. has criticized as well, saying that uh, his lawyer saying that Kenneth Smith is essentially being used as a test subject on a never been used before execution method. And now it's going to be used on a man that, as you mentioned, uh, they attempted to kill before back in 2022 and, and failed to do so for four hours, trying to find his vein to do lethal injection. And then the time ran out on the death warrant. Now, Smith 
is the one who originally asked for nitrogen gas to be used in his execution, but then he reversed course when he saw how the state, uh, reading their protocols, how they would uh, use this gas. His biggest sticking point is the mass, the five-point mass that's going to be used on his face to pump that gas. There's real concerns there. We could see from the court documents that he will vomit inside of that mask and then choke to death in that manner. They argue, his attorneys, that that will lead to excessive pain and thus torture and could lead to other things, including stroke and uh, being in a vegetative state if this procedure fails. Now, I spoke earlier on with his spiritual advisor, Reverend Jeff Hood, who is worried about his own personal safety, too. He had to sign a waiver saying he understood the harm of actually being in the execution chamber with um, uh, with Smith. And he is worried about the nitrogen potentially getting out of that mass, the seal not working correctly. He feels that the state of Alabama is unprepared. He also checked out a safety mechanism today, these oxygen monitors that will alarm if uh, there is tainted air, if there's a gas that's out there. Here was his response. I was even told today, Isabel, that if the oxygen monitors go off, they are, they have no sort of uh, requirement that they evacuate the room. So what we're talking about is people who have put these monitors in place and basically told me today that they have no plan on how to follow them. I don't think that uh, it's, it's alarmist to say that this is a group of people who have consistently failed to carry out executions and I believe that they are on a fast track to fail again. And Reverend Hood tells me he is scheduled to go into the execution chamber with Smith sometime after 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Caitlin. Isabel Rosales will be tracking this closely, obviously, in the state. Thank you for that report on the ground in Alabama. Up next for us tonight, a surprising return for a hugely popular late night host. Jon Stewart is returning to The Daily Show. Back in 1999, he began a 16-year run on the show that spawned a generation of late-night talent. Culturally, the show hit its peak under Stewart. Clips from his time behind the desk still go viral to this day, like when he mocked the angrier reaction that came with trying to talk about Israel and Palestine. In 2010, the rally to restore sanity and or fear in Washington showed how he had crossed from comedy to also real-world influence with young voters. The show has been using a series of fill-in hosts since Trevor Noah left as the permanent host. And at the same time, Stewart's show on Apple TV ended last year. We're told that he is set to return in two and a half weeks, but only on Mondays. The other days, he's going to work with a rotating cast of comedians as host and also executive produce the show. That is a moment of zen for many of his biggest fans here tonight. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. King Charles starts right now.